We welcome you to our 9.30 service. If you're new, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at GT, and we are so glad to have you worshiping with us. And the Lord is at work in our midst. He's doing some incredible things. We are in week two of a series where we are looking at the life of Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis 37 through 50, and really just tracking along with this theme of what, um, what does it mean for God to work good out of difficult situations. And so we've actually titled this series, Meant for Good. Uh, that famous line at the end of the story of Joseph where he's standing before his brothers. Uh, spoiler alert, he does stand before his brothers at some point if you haven't read this story. And he, uh, he says to them, you intended this for evil in my life, but God meant it for good. And this morning we're going to look at some of the middle stages of Joseph in this story. And I actually have 24 verses to read here from God's word because it's Old Testament and it's narrative. So I won't ask you to stand for this because you may be standing for a long time. But I do want to read the entire story because I believe it is God's word that tells the story far better than my abbreviations or my trying to reveal the story. So are we ready to get into God's word this morning? All right, my, my mentor used to always say, get into the word and the word will get into you. All right, so we're going to get into his word and we're going to ask that it does something in our hearts, in our lives. So here we are, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 39. It says this, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down from there. Backtrack to last week. Remember at the end of last week, we were talking how Joseph's brothers, because of their hatred, because of their jealousy towards Joseph, they actually beat him up, throw him in a cave, leave him for dead, and then ultimately they decide, well, let's not kill him, let's not leave him, but let's sell him into slavery. So it's picking up from that point. Verse 2, and the Lord was what? With Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Joseph was hitting the gym and getting swole, all right? Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Everyone say scandalous. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Uh, yeah, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, 
when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. And he came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. And he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left, he left uh, the garment beside me and fled out to the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was what? With Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. I want to ask you a question here this morning, and the question is simply this. Have you ever found yourself in a season of waiting for something that you felt you were ready for? Have you ever found yourself in a season where you felt you were ready for it, but there seemed to be certain restraints for why you could not step forward into that thing that you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you were in fact ready for? Have you ever found yourself in a position of leadership or authority or influence and then, like Joseph, experienced some type of demotion or setback? Now, what we need to remember from week one of this series is that the journey that Joseph is going to go on to get from where he is to where God desires him to be, that being the journey of transformation, is full of many ups and downs. And yet God promises to always meet him and ultimately be present with him in those places, that somehow God in his goodness is going to prepare Joseph for his purpose. And so if you were here last week, we talked about this idea of the sovereign plan of God is that we would ultimately be more transformed into the image of Jesus. And in that journey of transformation, we love to think that it's a straight line or a linear line where we go from where we're at as somehow supernaturally or miraculously, or if we just pray hard enough or pray in the spirit long enough or do our devotions enough that somehow we will just arrive poof at this place of transformation 
But in the journey of life of God leading us to where he wants us to be, it's never a straight line. We find ourselves all over the place at times. Sometimes it's his leading. Sometimes it's our own leading. Sometimes it's God saying, I want you to go over here so that you can experience things. And other times it's us saying, God, I want to ignore your voice for right now. And I'm going to make this decision. And we find ourselves so off course of what God has for us in our life. But the beauty of God's sovereignty and God's province is that no matter where we find ourselves, he's always there with us. Even when we are in the place where he does not desire us to be, God is present, and he says, I'm here, and I will be with you, and I will help guide you and lead you no matter what you are going through. And this is connected to the goodness of our God. Now, in the story that we just read in the last 24 verses, what we see is that Joseph has experienced horrific hardship in his life. He's been abandoned by his brothers He's been sold into slavery. He's gone into Egypt. And in the place of Egypt, he is now gaining influence. He is now gaining notoriety. With with that influence and notoriety, all of a sudden he experiences terrible setbacks. And so what we see is that Joseph is on this journey of going through what's called the process of preparation. If you remember from week one, God gives this vision to Joseph. He's a dreamer. He has this gift that is from God. And Joseph, he begins to blurt out his dreams and blurt out what God has shown him. And he thinks that because he's gifted, it just qualifies him for automatically being used by God. But you see, Joseph, he has to go through a little bit of a a refining process. He has to go through a little bit of a, a purging. God has to do some things in his heart and his life to bring about a healthy character so that he can, in fact, use him for his purposes and glory. And so we see over many chapters, and we're going to see it over and over again in the series, that Joseph is in the journey, he's in the process of preparation. He is gifted, and at many times he thinks, this is my breakthrough moment. But over and over again, what appears to be his breakthrough moment leads to a setback. But that setback never deters God's heart and purpose for Joseph's life. And so what we see when it comes to the process of preparation is that number one, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. We see that Joseph had to experience brokenness in order to be softened. You see, Joseph was removed from everything he ever knew. How many people in this auditorium here this morning, Canada is not your birth country? Go ahead and raise your hands. It's a lot of hands. How many people remember your home country? How many people remember the good of your home country? The comfort of your home country? Sometimes the challenges of your home country. What we see in the story of Joseph is that everything that Joseph ever knew, he was actually removed from that. You see, many times God has to remove us from everything we know and feel comfortable with so that he can allow the process of brokenness that leads to softening our callous hearts to happen so that we might be more molded into the image and shape that he has for us, the journey 
of transformation. You see, not only was Joseph comfortable with where he was at, he was also dependent upon a family structure that enabled him to remain in the condition of self-righteousness and laziness. And so Joseph, he is being sold into slavery and abandoned by his family, and ultimately this forces him to have to begin to deal with these issues of self-righteousness and laziness and a callousness of heart. Joseph had to experience brokenness in order to be softened because God is looking for people that are soft that he can mold and shape into the image that he desires for them. Now, if you're like me, many times you probably pray and say, God, I've had enough brokenness in my life. I've gone through enough stuff. God, I promise I'll remain humble. I won't allow my heart to become callous. I will not allow a self-righteous spirit to come upon me. So I don't need any purging. I don't need any refining. I don't need to go through the valley of the shadow of death. God, just help me skip from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. I don't want to come off this mountain and go into the valley to get to the next place that you have for me. I just want to prance around from mountaintop to mountain. Can I get a witness in here? Does anybody identify with that? Yeah. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with the condition of our hearts, we so easily become self-righteous and callous and hardened. And God in his goodness and grace alloweth, allows us to go through seasons of brokenness. He does not cause the brokenness, but he allows us to go through them because he knows within them we become soft. We become humble. And it's a humble person he's looking to shape and form. Secondly, we see that Joseph had to learn to become dependent upon God alone and nothing else. As I just said, he was so dependent upon his family structure. We learned about the coat last week. That coat was a gift given by his father, and it signified a non-working person's coat. It wasn't just that it had many ornaments on it and many colors. It was the idea of, Joseph, you are gifted. I recognize the gift on your life, and I'm going to set you up to where you don't have to go through any type of hardship like my other son's. You're going to have it easy in this home. You're going to have it very comfortable in this home. You're not going to have to do the work like your other brothers do. And so Joseph, he was dependent upon that structure. But in the process of preparation, Joseph had to learn to become dependent upon God alone and nothing else. In Proverbs 3, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your what? Own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make, your straight, make straight your path. Psalm 9 says, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who are, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You see, somewhere along the line of being sold into Slavery and eventually being brought, bought by Potiphar, Joseph, we see here, develops a strong relationship with God. 
And essentially, he learns to be dependent upon his leading. In fact, it's interesting to note that the Bible doesn't just say that the Lord was with Joseph so that he knew it. But it actually records in verse 3 that it it was so evident that the Lord was with him that even others recognized it. In fact, his Egyptian master actually took notice. And so somewhere along the line, and in the Bible, in the narratives, many times it skips over what could be months, could be years, could be a whole uh, kind of length of time. Somewhere along the line, Joseph begins to realize, I need to be dependent upon the one true God and him alone. I no longer have the comfort of my home. I no longer have the protection of my father. I no longer have my coat that I used to wear proudly and exemplified me from being, uh, having to do different challenging things in life. And so somewhere along the line, he begins to grow in this trust and this dependence upon God. And because of that, the favor of the Lord begins to rest upon him in such a way where not, not only does he recognize it, but, but others around him they actually recognize it. Think about that for a moment. Think about that very thing that even what would be considered a pagan king, a pagan master, sorry, recognizes there's something different about this person. The Lord is with them. You see, how confident are you that the Lord is with you? How dependent are you that the Lord is leading you? Do those around you see the evidence of God being with you knowingly or unknowingly? I love the testimonies from people that are not people of faith that have an interaction with a Christian, whether at work or in their neighborhood or in a situation. They say, I don't know what it is that is different about that person. There's something unique in their lives. I love hearing those stories because that is what is happening here with with Joseph. That even the master recognizes this, this guy, there's something on his life. There's a goodness on his life. There's a favor on his life. There's a blessing on his life. It's like everything that he touches, it just turns to gold. And this becomes a great testimony all throughout Joseph's life. And it becomes a testimony in his life because he is learning in the process of preparation what it means to be dependent upon God alone and nothing else. Side rail here. In the book of Revelation, which is one of the most confusing books to read and study, because often we've been taught to read and study it poorly, but that's another thing for another time. There are, are two different marks that exist in the book of Revelation. Now we all know about the one mark, it's the mark of the beast. But there's a second mark, it's the mark of the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And a contrast through the book of Revelation is connected to who are you marked by. And the idea of the mark in apocalyptic literature of Second Temple Judaism was connected to the idea of what's called allegiance and trust. Is your allegiance and trust in the empire, in the government, in the programs, in the system in John's day, in Rome? 
Or is your allegiance and trust in the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world? And you see, it's in the process of preparation where we have to learn to put our complete hope, trust, allegiance in the lamb rather than all the systems of man. And this is the journey that Joseph is on. He has a gifted, he has a good home. He has a gifted home. He has many blessings in his life. He is living in comfort. And God says, I want to use you, but in order to use you, I got to get you out of the place of comfort. And you're going to go through some stuff in your life so that you might become completely dependent upon my leading and nothing else. Once again, if you're like me, I pray, God, I'm just going to trust you alone and nothing else, but that's not reality. I begin trusting other things in my life sometimes more than his leading. And God allows us to go through these seasons, what the early church fathers often call the dark night of the soul, to where we get stripped of everything and ultimately come to the place where we say, I got nothing else, but I got you, and that's enough for my life. Thirdly, we see that Joseph had to learn that his work and his responsibility didn't just reflect his character, but it reflected the God that he served. You see, if I were Joseph in this situation, being sold into slavery, i got to be honest. My impetus for work and my motivation for work probably would not be high. I would probably just try to get by with the bare minimum, do what is simply required of me, and then just be done. But in the process of preparation, what Joseph is learning is that his work and his responsibility, even in this difficult, challenging situation that he's in, is not just a reflection of his character, but somehow, some way, it's connected to how he reflects the God that he serves. You see, I believe that it is imperative that we as Christians are known for being the most integral honest, and hard-working people. I'll say that again. I believe that it is imperative that we as Christians are known for being the most integral, honest, and hard-working people. Three of you, I'll say it one more time. I believe that it is imperative that we as Christians are known for being the most integral, honest, and hard-working people. And all God's people said... <laughs> Amen. You see, not only will it lead to seasons of favor and success, but it also becomes a great testimony for the God that we proclaim to serve. You see, faithfulness many times leads to success. And whether it's right or wrong, when you are successful, no matter where you are, people want to know what is it that motivates you. And when our motivation is that I understand I'm not just working for a boss and I'm not just working for a paycheck and I'm not just working so that I might have a good reputation, but I'm working because I see everything that I do is bringing glory and honor to God. What a great opportunity for witness in that situation. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, said this, if the point of work is to serve and exalt ourselves, 
then our work inevitably becomes less about the work and more about us. Our aggressiveness will eventually become abusive. Our drive will become burnout. And our self-sufficiency will become self-loathing. But if the purpose of work is to serve and exalt something beyond ourselves, then we actually have a better reason to deploy our talent, ambition, and entrepreneurial vigor. And we are more likely to be successful in the long run, even by the world's definitions. Now, many years ago in our previous church, in the community we lived in, we, we began to recognize a great need of homelessness, um, a great challenge of homelessness in our community. Bloomington, Indiana, with the university, it's about 110,000 people. You take away the university, it's about 60,000 people. So every summer, it becomes kind of like a ghost town. It's a very liberal community. There's a lot of great social programs that exist in Bloomington, Indiana, three meals a day, and a lot of lodging during the cold months. But we began to notice that many cities from around the area actually began to bring the homeless into this little small community. Cincinnati, Louisville, Indianapolis, even people from Chicago, they would bring them into this community because they knew there were many social programs for them. And so during the warm months, there was no low barrier shelter. And many of these people were just on the streets. And their drunken stupors and their addictive behavior and sometimes their mental health disorders and things that are happening. They were just on the streets and it was causing all kinds of problems. So we had a, a piece of property next to us, about five acres, where there was a picnic shelter house that existed there. We had bought it back in the 70s and uh, had done nothing but mow that piece of property for like a couple of decades. So we got the great idea that we were going to start a low barrier homeless shelter to help get people off the streets in the nighttime. And so we put together a working committee for this in our church, and we opened it up because we realized we can't do this on our own. We opened it up to the interfaith community, and then we also opened it up even to the uh, secular community. And many people got really uh, amped up about this great opportunity to help come together for this need that exists in our community. Now what we realize, what we realize is that many people that initially signed up, many of them were signing up to do this good more for how they would feel about themselves and doing this good. And it became a great challenge because everyone has these like utopian ideals about justice ministry and what does it look like to really be the hands and feet of Jesus in a broken community. But anybody who's been involved with that understands it's messy, <laughs> it's hard, and it's not necessarily rewarding in the way you think it's rewarding. So within the first couple of nights, old drunk Petey is chew, uh, chewing out Susie and having a fit in the middle of the night and all of a sudden, Susie's saying, I can't take this. I didn't sign up for this. This is not what I thought it would be. These people are entitled, and they don't appreciate anything that we're doing for them. I quit. And real quickly, that began to happen over and over and over again. So I remember gathering together the faith community and reminding, saying, listen, we have to understand, we're not doing this for how we feel about it. We're not doing this so that we give ourselves a little pat on the back and say, aren't we just good Christians? We're doing this because this is the heart of God for people. And over the course of three years, while they got a permanent shelter built in our community, what we, what we saw 
is that many people that were not rooted in a faith that says all work is for the glory of God, many of those people actually began to fizzle out and quit. But for the faith community that understood, I'm going to get chewed out. People are going to throw up near me. People are going to do other things near me. I'm going to get verbally abused at times. But I understand I'm not just doing it for me feeling good. I'm doing it for the glory of God. Those were the ones that remained. And I think this is what Joseph is learning in this journey. He's learning in the process of preparation that his work is not just about his character. His work is a witness, a testimony to the very God that he professes, that he serves, and that he worships. Fourthly, we see that Joseph had to learn that compromise could destroy everything that he had been working towards. I love this when it comes to Joseph's response in this situation here. The wife of the master takes notice that Joseph is one fine-looking dude. I mean, I don't know what he looked like, but I'm just envisioning some of those guys that I see in the gym sometimes and say, well, what, is it, what does it take to get to that place? <laughs> How much time do they spend? What is their, and whenever it gets to the diet, I'm like, yep, I'm out. So <laughs> I, I just, I'm a disciple of Jesus, not of John, right? The disciples of John, they fasted. They come to Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? And he says, listen, when they're with the king, they got a feast. I, that's, sign me up for that. I'm a disciple of Jesus, right? I'm a follower of him. But there's something special about Joseph and the way he looked and his appearance. And there's this, there's this lust in her heart to pursue him. And so this temptation is not something that Joseph goes looking for. This temptation is something that comes looking for Joseph. And what we see here is that number one, he just simply refuses it. And then secondly, he runs from it. Like, Listen, if you remember nothing else here this morning, when it comes to temptation, refuse it and then run from it. It will help you in your journey of faith to stop falling from temptation. You see, we live in such an immediate culture, gratifying our every whim and desire. So saying no to what we want is not a regular practice of ours. And because we are always saying yes, yes, and indulging all the time when temptation comes, we are so patterned to simply say yes. And we don't have the built up strength and the resilience to say nope, not today, Satan, and then running the other way from it. Because we only know how to give in. And this is true in our eating, this is true in our entertainment. This is true in how we spend our pastime. Like, when was the last time you felt something that wasn't necessarily evil, a desire, and you said, I could do that, I'm not necessarily in sin, but no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to walk over to the fridge and open up the fridge because I'm feeling a little bit of hunger and just find that, oh, there's always ice cream in the Woodcock home. And if I can be honest, confession is good for the soul. Ice cream is my kryptonite. (laughs) And how often do I say, no more ice cream? And then I go to the fridge, it's just there, it's there, it's right before me. And I just say, yes, 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 all the time. 
And so when the enemy comes to bring temptation, how easily we fall into that. Ladies, when was the last time you went into a, a store, you went bargain shopping? Right? Because it's always about bargain shopping. I got a good deal on this. Yeah, but that good deal was still X amount of dollars. Right? When was the last time you went into a store and you, you went to the rack and it was 40% off? And you tried it on. You went in and it fit perfectly. And you knew this thing just is amazing. This just looks great. It feels great. You know, you know when there's those clothes that don't just look good, but they feel good? You understand what I'm saying, right? And you say, you know what? It looks great. It feels good. It's an incredible deal. You walk out and you tell the person, thanks, but no thanks. And you walk out. <laughs> like, how often do we do this kind of stuff? We don't. And I know those are simple, silly analogies here, but the truth is we are in such a consumeristic culture where all we know how to, all we know what to do is to simply say yes all the time to our every whim and desire. And I love it in this moment, the temptation comes and Joseph says, nope. He refuses it. He doesn't entertain it. And then he runs the other way. It's interesting that in the New Testament, over and over again, it says, resist the devil and he will flee. But when it comes to sexual immorality, what is the encouragement? Run the flip the other way. Tim Woodcock paraphrase. <laughs> Don't entertain it. Don't meddle with it. Don't try to compromise in the moment. Refuse it. And run the stink the other way. Get out of dodge in that situation. Because Joseph, he, he understood that, that if he compromised, even for this moment, it could cost him everything. And some people read this and they say, well, it did cost him. He got falsely accused and he went into prison. Listen, I believe, and many scholars would agree with this, the master knew what actually happened. But the master knew he couldn't humiliate his wife. That would lead to more problems. So even in the master's heart, he knew what he had to do to, to punish Joseph, but deep down, because according to the culture of the day, if it was true, Joseph should have been murdered on the spot. So the master said, well, I'm going to put him in prison, because the master actually knew what was taking place. Joseph understood if you compromise even for a moment, if you give in to that whim, it can destroy everything that God is doing in your life. Finally, Joseph, he had to learn what it means to remain steadfast even when everything goes wrong. You see, what appeared to be a setback ended up being a setup for him. And I don't know about you, but when I read this story and I really allow myself to enter into the text, not just read it because it's Bible study or read it because I want to be a good Christian. But when I really allow myself to enter into the text, I sense frustration on behalf of Joseph. Because I can't stand setbacks. How many people enjoy a good setback? <laughs> Thank you. I do not see that hand anywhere in the auditorium. Like you feel like you're making so much progress and you're making all these steps forward. All of a sudden something happens and it's like everything is all of a sudden just lost. It's discouraging, it's frustrating, it can be demoralizing at times. 
And yet what we see here is that God in his goodness, what appears to be a setback for Joseph, ends up becoming a set up for Joseph. You see, Joseph did everything right, and yet he was still wrongly accused and wrongly punished. Yet at the end of this chapter, we find Joseph placed in a prison where the king's prisoners are placed, and we see that God is still with Joseph. Right? Joseph, in, the, in this situation of transformation, he's way over here on the left. He was on course in his mind. He was on the path to success. He was on the journey of transformation. Now, because of this setback, he's way over here. And I'm sure he's having that moment of like, how did I get here, God? I didn't do anything wrong. I was trying to live faithful for you. But then the writer says that God was with Joseph even in this situation over here. And it appeared like a setback, but actually it was a set up for him to be an influence and witness in a place where there was probably no influence and witness. See, sometimes we, we begrudge, if I could say it that way, we begrudge the places that God has us because we feel like we're destined for something so much more and better. And in begrudging the very place where we are, we often miss what God wants to do in the place where we are. Well, I was having influence and success, and now I'm in prison. And God says, yeah, I know you're in prison. I allowed you to come here. And guess what? I'm with you, and there's people that I want to reach around you. But if you're just having a pity party about where you are and how you're not where you want to be, you can easily miss what God wants to do in the very place where you are. I have great revelation for you here this morning. Some of you have heard me say this before, but it's so important. This is gonna blow your minds, I promise you. Get ready? You are where you are. You are where you are. So many times where if I could just be, if I could just have, if I could just experience this promotion, you are where you are. And in the place where you are, God is with you. And he desires to use you and do something in and through your life in the very place where you are. If we were south of the border, you would say it like this. You is where you is. You can't change that necessarily in this moment. But you can be steadfast. You can be faithful. Even if it's not the very place you want to be. And I promise God is with you. And he will work through you in the midst of the situation. For some of you, God puts you there intentionally. And sometimes that's hard. Because it's not where I want to be. It's not what I desire in my life, but God, not just allow, but for some of you, he puts you there intentionally because his heart is for those people that are where you are as well. And Joseph, he's learning this in this process. You see, Joseph, he doesn't give up on God when things go wrong. Rather, he remains steadfast, diligent, and dependent upon God. I want to begin closing here real quickly. Every week when we're talking through this series, whenever I preach the old, through the Old Testament, we always have to see that 
is ultimately pointing towards Jesus and his fulfillment. Every character of the Old Testament, every leader, every king, every patriarch, matriarch, prophet, prophetess, every one of them are pointing towards how Jesus would be a better fulfillment of anything they were ever able to do. So when we get to the Gospels, we read of a better Joseph named Jesus, who Jesus does nothing wrong, and yet he is wrongly accused and wrongly punished. Not only does Jesus not do anything wrong in the situation for why he's punished, but Jesus is the only person ever to walk the face of the earth who never did anything wrong in his entire life. If ever there was someone who was able to say, this is not fair, it's not you or me, it's Jesus. So Jesus, he is wrongly accused, he is wrongly punished, yet Jesus remains faithful and dependent upon God the Father, knowing that he is working and orchestrating all things for the good, not just for himself, but for all people. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says these words. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but what? The will of the one who sent me. Jesus understood that his work on earth wasn't just about bringing glory to his name. And I think he would be justified in bringing glory to his name. But he says, I don't do it for my own glory. I do it for the glory of my Father. Jesus had a higher call. Jesus had a higher purpose. He understood that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of what may have appeared like a setback, God was with them and at work accomplishing his purposes, his ultimate redemptive purposes through his very life. There's a story in John 12, verses 20 through 26 where the disciples have been spending some time with Jesus and they're thinking, wow, Jesus, you're gaining a lot of influence. Your followers on Instagrams are up to 20,000 and people are really taking notice of how miracle signs and wonders are happening in your midst. And you keep feeding the people. They love being fed. And some Greeks come to Philip and Andrew and say, hey, Jesus. So not some Jews, some Greeks, people of influence probably philosophical stalwarts, they come to Philip and Andrew and say, we've heard of Jesus. We want to meet him. Now, I might be reading a bit between the lines here, but I love to envision Philip and Andrew, Greeks, influence, opportunity, cease today. Jesus! We just met some Greeks. Could be a great inroad for your kingdom to come. Influence networking, great opportunity. They've heard of you. They want to meet you. And Jesus goes into all this like weird, wild rhetoric. He says, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it shall not give any life. And unless this and this. I can just imagine like Andrew and Philip going, what does that have to do with anything that we just told you? 
He says this in verse 28 and 29, after spewing off all this weird rhetoric. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Because see, Jesus understands the suffering that he's going to endure. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, even Jesus understood that no matter what he endured, no matter what he went through, drinking the cup of the Father and living for the will of the Father, yes, may cost him, but it was the very purpose for why he was sent into the world. And it cost Jesus everything. Everything. We, we spiritualize the crucifixion. We spiritualize the abandonment. And there's spiritual things happening there. But Jesus was also fully man. He experienced horrific abandonment and rejection and pain and suffering. And he knew it was on the horizon. Why do you think he even said in the garden, Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Oh, Father. And he endured the most excruciating form of punishment, not because of anything wrong he had done, but because of the wrong of his brothers and sisters as the great elder brother. And so Joseph, in the process of preparation, is ultimately going to get to a place where he is used by God to help bring saving and redemption and protection to his family. But oh, there is a better Joseph, and his name is Jesus. And at the cross, he made a way for all people from every tribe, language, and tongue to experience salvation, to experience redemption, to experience forgiveness, not for anything that he had done, for the sins that we have done and committed. And he made a way for us to be brought into the family of God. Amen? And there was a process of preparation in Joseph's life. But I also believe in many ways there was a process of preparation. Now, Jesus was perfect, but he still went on the journey. Jesus was perfect and without sin, but he still went through the difficulty and the hardship. And at every place, you see him pray this, Father, glorify your name. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's stand to our feet here this morning. invite our prayer team to come to the front and every week as we close we love to open up the altars for anyone that would want to receive prayer for anything and maybe you're here this morning and if you're honest you would say I'm, I'm in a season where I know God is with me but if I'm honest I don't sense it I don't feel it or maybe you would say I'm in a season where I can't see how God desires to bring anything good out of the situation promises of God all throughout scripture is he does not let anything return void. He does not let anything happen that he cannot use for his glory. Even when it's not his heart or his purpose or his desire it was the will of the enemy. It was the situations of life. 
scriptures over and over again tell them the testimony tell the story well, the enemy intends for destruction God can use for good he can always bring beauty out of the ashes and maybe you're in a situation where you feel like it's nothing but ashes or you're in a dark night of the soul we have a prayer team that would love to pray with you that you would learn what it means to become completely dependent upon God and him Maybe you're here this morning, you never made a conscious decision where you say, you know what, I want to stop living for myself and I want to experience that salvation, that redemption that Jesus made a way for. I want to put my faith, hope, and trust in Him as Lord. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you and help lead you in that prayer and what that means for your life. But would every single person just put their hands out for a moment as we close? I just want to close this moment by praying over us as a collective group. So Lord, I thank you for your church. You promised you would build. And we see how you are at work and how you are building your kingdom here at GT. We see how your spirit is moving in our midst, corporately, but also individually in the lives of your people. And I pray over everyone here that finds himself in the process, in the journey. Maybe they're not where they thought they would be. Maybe they're not where they hoped they would be. But Lord, I pray that you would give them an assurance that you are with them. That you never leave them nor forsake them. That you are present in the midst of wherever they find themselves. You want to use them. You want to work in and through their lives, in that job, in that relationship, in that opportunity. And it may not be the ideal situation, but I believe you're still present and you're with them. And you desire to bring your kingdom come, even in the midst of that non-ideal situation. I pray for anyone here that does not know you as Lord. Holy Spirit, come right now begin to convict hearts of sin begin to soften hearts of callousness so that they may respond in faith to your call because you are always calling your children to come home you are always welcoming them to your table to belong to the family that you have and I declare your goodness and your blessing over your church today that they will go in the power and strength of your might walk in your ways, be the most steadfast and diligent people of this culture. Not for their own glory, but for the sake of your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Have an incredible week. We'll see many of you at prayer school. If you want prayer, we would love to pray with you. Have an incredible afternoon.